in Skagit in Boca and those of you who are watching online to Bellingham, Cornwall, where this last week the skies have been cloudy with haze all day long uh, from wildfires coming from British Columbia. We're really excited you're here and this summer we've been on a safari through the Book of Romans that we have entitled the series Essentials of Faith. And this weekend, we're in Romans chapter 10, and I want to invite you to grab your Bible or your phone and open it up and join us there right now, if you would. If you have ever read, and I hope that you're using the link that we give you on the back to be reading through the book of Romans with Summer, if you have ever read through the book of Romans, you may have noticed that there is this big tectonic or seismic shift that occurs between Romans chapter 8 and everything that's gone before it, and starting with Romans chapter 9, going through 10 and 11. The themes of Romans uh, 1 through 8 are how a person can get right with God and empowered by His Spirit to live free from those things inside us that just keep, keep us enslaved and chained down. It's, it's an amazing chapter, a group of chapters. And you go from hearing some of these most amazing promises in all the Bible Promises like, as uh, Brian and Kip put it, there's no condemnation for you before God, and there's no separation from the love of God ever in your life if you know Jesus. So we go from some of these alpine perspectives of how great God's love is into some of the hardest, some of the densest and thickest thickets to understand in all of Scripture. And there is no apparent transition between Romans 8 and Romans 9. And so you wonder, what's, what's going on? How does, how does what we're about to learn fit with what we've been going through? Why is all there this information about the Jews? What's that about? And how studying about how God has a plan for the Jewish people affect me and my life right now? And as Scott mentioned to us last week, don't just skip over these passages because they're tough. We want you to go ahead and try and make your way through it. And the truth is, these chapters are really tough sledding, so much so that John Calvin, one of the great reformers, said that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are the Gordian knot of the Bible. It's just really, really hard to get your brain and then your heart around these chapters. And so what we're doing in these three weeks in this particular part of the, of the book is we're just trying to get some perspective. And as we're praying and as we're reading uh, throughout the week and as we come here on, on the weekends, we think that this, this passage is going to open up to us and we're going to find some new challenges in our life. So let me say what we're going to do this weekend right here. We're going to come to these three chapters like we're putting a big puzzle, a thousand-piece puzzle together, okay? And so when you start a new puzzle that you've never done before, one of the first things you do is you try to get the border established. Because once you get that big picture, then you can start to put in the different elements of the puzzle. And that's what we're going to try to do. And so once we get that border figured out this weekend, then what we're going to do is raise two questions... They're going to help us get through this weekend's passage in Romans chapter 10. 
So what I want to do to start with is help give you the big picture of these three chapters. And I want to begin with a question, and here's the question. What do these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, have to do with the rest of the book? Romans 8 ends on a super high note. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then you get way up to the Matterhorn itself. All things work together for good to those who love God and are, and here's the big word, called according to His purpose. And these encouraging promises in Romans chapter 8 raise some really perplexing questions when you come in to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Let me give you three of the questions that, that just pop up, okay? First question, if the Jews are God's chosen people, then why aren't all the Jews Jews for Jesus? Second question, if the Jews, God's chosen people, aren't Jews for Jesus, has God's plan for Israel gone off the tracks? Third question, and if God's plan for his own family has gone off the tracks, then how in the world, Paul, can you believe that God causes all things to work together for good? So before we get to uh, Romans chapter 12 and on through 15, 16 is the conclusion, before we get into this real practical part about how we can live a righteous lifestyle at home and in our businesses, we have to go back and get through 9, 10, and 11 to figure out if what Paul is saying in Romans 8 really works out, because if God is not working all things together for the Jewish people, his family, is it possible to really trust his promises? When I read these chapters, it seems to me that I'm an observer in a really interesting middle school classroom. I have a great, great, they have a great, great teacher up front, and it's one of those rare moments where she has their full attention, full attention. And they are interacting with this teacher. They really get what she's saying. And so she will make a point, and somebody will make a really good point, and they have a good conversation. But there is this twerpy little kid sitting in the front row. Okay, not you. Don't worry. So, uh, and every time the teacher starts to make a big point, this twerpy little kid raises his hand, starts waving it, and begins to interrupt the teacher with really pesky questions. That's what it's like when you read Romans 9, 10, and 11. So I'm going to put up on the screen some of the pesky questions that this kid seems to be asking Paul. Ready? Here we go. In uh, Romans 9, 4, for, for example, the twerky kid says, Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promises to Israel? Paul says, no. Let's go on, okay? Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. Romans 9, 16. Let's go on. I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. Let's go on to the next one. And did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not, Paul says. Romans chapter 9 through 11 is what, here's a fancy word. There's a name for what's going on here. It's called a theodicy, okay? 
It's, a, it's not a biblical name. It's just a theological name. It has two words, theo, which means God, and deci, which means justice. And what this is is that a theodicy is a speech that is asking questions about how just God is. And the speech ends up vindicating that God is right and he is just and he is merciful and he is sovereign and he is wise and he really knows what he is doing. So this is, this is a, a tough passage, these chapters, to figure out. So the next question is this. How do these three chapters fit together? Each one, 9, 10, and 11, has its own theme. Each one shows that God is just in doing what he's doing. So, for example, Romans chapter 9 shows us that God is sovereign. He wasn't surprised when his own family did not believe in Jesus. The prophets are quoting here, Paul quotes them in Romans chapter 9. The prophets said that the Messiah would offend the Jewish people, that he would be a stumbling stone to the leadership. And there was supposed to be this stone that would build, you could build your life on this one stone, the Messiah. He would protect you. He would guide you. He would keep your life, life straight and strong. But the Jewish leaders didn't believe in him at all. And so Scott showed us last week that we can trust God because God really is in control. And he had us hold our hands like this and, and think about the things that we felt that we had to keep back from God. You remember that? And then he said, if you believe in God and that God is sovereign, show it to him by opening and releasing your hands and trusting him with what's bothering you the most. Romans 9 shows us that God is sovereign. Then today we're going to be in chapter 10, and we're going to see that Israel is sulking. She's sulking in her own juices, her own self-righteousness. Israel is like a runaway bride. She has come down the aisle, so to speak, to meet this amazing person who will complete her in ways that her ancestors said would be the best person for her, the Messiah. And when she sees Jesus coming, she gets cold feet, and she, she runs away from him. And now she is sulking in her own juices. Next week, we're going to come to Romans chapter 11. And Bob is prepared to answer every question in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that Scott and I have missed or done wrong, okay? Right, Bob? Right. So anyway, chapter 11 is going to show us that God had a plan all along to bring his bride, his runaway bride, back to the altar. And the day will come when... All Israel will be saved. And when that happens, we will know for sure that God's love will never be separated from his people. And we'll know for sure that all things really are working together for good to those who are called. So that's the border of the, where we are in the book, and that's what each of these chapters is talking about. So... Let's go to this, more, this, this weekend's passage here in Romans chapter 10. And I want to point out two key questions that come out of this chapter that will help us get a handle on what's going on. Here's the first question. Why are there so few Jews for Jesus? Few. 
I mean really, really few. In Paul's day, uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, he says in verse 27, he says, how many Jews are there that are following Jesus? It's a remnant. It's just like a disease has gone through through Israel and no one's alive anymore. They're not believing in Jesus. They're just not. So what about in 2017? How many Jews are there in the world? I know the answer. Don't worry. You don't have to know the answer to this. How many, how many Jews are there worldwide? There are 14 million Jews of all stripes and varieties. Next question. Of all the Jews in the world, how many are Jews for Jesus? So there are 14 million Jews. We think there are 300,000 Jews who are Jews for Jesus. And if you want to do the percentage on that in your mind or with your phone, 2%. today of the Jews who are a part of God's family are, the, are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. So why so few? And the answer is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. And there are other reasons, but here in Romans chapter 10, Paul is going to give us four. And I invite you to use the uh, blink. It'll be a great way for you to take some notes at this time. So why are there so few Jews? Well, the answer begins is in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. And let's read that. Romans chapter 10, we're going to read those verses right now. Here we go. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He's praying for these people who are rejecting the Messiah. For I can testify about them. I mean, he spent the last 20 or 30 years talking to Jews who are not for Jesus. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, Romans 10, 1 and 2. So let's back up and reset where we are in history, okay, real quick. We're in the first century. Uh, The Jews have come back, they came back several centuries ago from a big timeout. We call that the Babylonian captivity. God kicked them out of their own homeland, disciplining them because of their idolatry. Actually, they had broken each and every one of the Ten Commandments, and God says, I've had it. Can't stay at home. You got to go. I love you. Maybe we're working out, but you got to go. So they come back, and the good news, when the Jews came back, they no longer committed idolatry. Didn't see it at all. And when Jesus comes on the scene, and when you read what he did in the Gospels, you know what's really interesting? He never talks about idolatry. As far as I know it, not once. You see, that timeout work, when they had to get away and think about things, they realized that their only hope was really in God. So that's the good news in the first century. But there's some bad news with that too, okay? The flip side of that. The flip side of that is that they, and I say this respectfully, they begin to idolize the law of Moses. That's a funny thing to say, but bear with me on this. I'm not saying they didn't believe it. I'm just saying that It was like it became God instead of a way to get to know God. And this is what Paul is saying in in, in, in verse 2. 
They were zealous for God, but their zeal was not based on knowledge. In the, in the centuries when they came back from uh, their big time out, there was a new group of individuals called the Pharisees. And they believed if, if the nation kept the law of Moses, by zealously keeping the law of Moses, you could induce labor contractions in heaven like a woman taking Pitocin right now. If, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're pregnant and you have to get your baby coming sooner or later, you just take this drug and the baby will pop out. But how can we get God to come down? How can we get the Messiah to come down? It's by keeping the law of Moses. And the Pharisees were trying to get as many people as possible to induce the coming of the Messiah. And the reason they didn't want Jesus was that Jesus didn't fit in with their plan. He didn't add anything to what they were trying to do. And Paul says that their zeal was misdirected. They took the 613 commands in the law, and then they added these traditions to them. And those traditions were almost as important as the law itself. And they were convinced that by keeping the law well enough, they'd be good enough for God to come down from heaven. Portland-based evangelist Luis Palau has had an amazing worldwide ministry uh, helping people become followers of Jesus. And Luis says that the number one reason that he's experienced throughout his whole ministry on why people don't come to Jesus is they just don't feel the need for it. They have their own plan and they're working their plan, if they even think about it at all. And that was the experience of my wife, Louise. Louise was born into a church-going family, good Presbyterian church, and uh, she saw no need for Jesus. And the way she says it, and I've got permission from my wife, believe me on this one, she says, she grew up thinking, of course I'm a Christian, I wasn't born in Turkey. And if you're not born in a Muslim country, then, of course, you're a Christian. And her plan was, if I was born in a church-going home in a Christian nation, it's automatic. You were born right with God. Jesus is in there somewhere, but that's about as much as I know about him. The reason the Jews didn't accept Jesus is that he didn't fit into their plan. Verse 3 gives us another reason. They resist God's challenge because God is calling them to change their minds. And this verse says, uh, Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, let me find myself here, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And as Paul went around, remember he had been a dedicated Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a zealot of zealots. He meets Jesus, and his life radically changes around. And so he goes around into the synagogues and talks to people who were just like him or just like he used to be. And he says they are resisting God's, God's challenge to change their minds, and they're wanting to establish their own righteousness and not submit to whatever it is that God wants for them as well as of them. And so... They thought that the divine requirement to get right with God rested squarely on human shoulders, their shoulders. And to this day, people 
are trying to make private salvation deals with God, coming to God with their own agenda on how he must accept them. And what I've found in talking with people, and you know, you have too, I'm sure, is that a lot of people assume that run-of-the-mill moral goodness that so many people already have is enough to make us right with God. And they dismiss any other idea that goes against that preconceived idea on how you get right with God. Why so few? Let's go on to the third idea. They don't understand who Jesus is and what he offers. And here we come to Romans 10, verse 4, which is one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. This verse is telling us, and we want to read it, that Christ is the end of the law to all who believe. And this is an amazing idea. The word end there means two different things. It means that Christ is the, the goal of the law, and Christ is the end of the law. And especially, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. So let's just back up and unpack this just for a second. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. And when you are listening to Jesus in Matthew 5 give that Sermon on the Mount, he comes across the end of the chapters there, Matthew 7 says, he taught with authority, which is another way of saying Jesus presented himself as the, the living incarnate Torah. He is the Word of God. He is the law of God. He goes throughout his ministries, and he was always getting in trouble with the Pharisees because of the law. And Jesus said at one point that he was the Lord of one of the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath. Then you get to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, okay? Jesus is a rabbi. He has some followers. So if the rabbi is going to go away, what is the rabbi going to say to his disciples? He's going to say, whatever you do, keep the law of Moses. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to teach other people my commandments. Teach them to observe all that I have told you. Who does he think he is? Paul is saying who he is. He is the end. He is the goal. He is the living embodiment of the law of God. He doesn't say go out and preach the Torah. He's not against that. He says preach and teach all that I've commanded you. And so here Paul says that he's the end and the goal. What does that mean? Christ is the goal of the law. For centuries, they've been looking forward to the time when it, the law would be put on their hearts and not just on parchments. God's law would get inside them. And Jesus is the one who gives us his spirit, and the spirit comes in us, and so we can fulfill the law of Christ because Christ himself is alive and broken people like us. Christ is the goal of the law, but he is also the end of the law in one sense when it comes to righteousness. Because through faith in Jesus, that is how people find that all-important means to a right relationship with God. 
Christ is the destination. And once you get to the end of that place, you get off. You're there. Jesus is all we need. And they couldn't accept that. There has to be something more than Jesus. And so the Jews just couldn't go along with that. Number four, they misunderstood Moses. And here we come to chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all, and that's the key word in this, in this verse, all of its commands. If you grew up in a synagogue and you went to it you know, every, every uh, Sabbath day, <clears throat> you could really easily get the idea that if you keep the law, you're going to be right with God. Moses said so. And hypothetically, it is possible to never sin and to always keep the letter and the spirit of all 613 commands. But if you've ever raised kids and if you've ever looked in your own heart, you know that it is really hard to always do the right thing. It's a 24-7 challenge. The truth is most all of us do good and all of us in one way or another do something bad. And when James, in James chapter 2, is thinking about this, how a person is only made right with God through Jesus, he, he, he has this interesting comment about the law in James chapter 2, and I'm going to paraphrase it for us. You may not commit adultery, but boy, you murder people with your words, your temper, and by not getting involved with taking care of the poor. And then I'm just going to uh, read here in James 2.10. He says this. Remember, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. And at that point, you've got to say, what? How can that be? Keeping the law meant keeping the whole law. The whole law. All have 613 commands. Perfectly, day and night for your entire life. Moses says, do that, and you'll live. So think of it this way. Let's say your kids are playing baseball in the backyard. And uh, so, you know, the older kid is really showing off, and he's really firing the ball hard. And he throws it over his little brother's head. I mean, he really had some heat on this thing. And it goes, and it hits the neighbor's plate glass window. And Thankfully, it doesn't shatter the window, but it puts, you know, one of those broken little spider web things when a, when a window cracks? And so, hey, you're a good dad. You take the kid over. Hey, he's sorry. We didn't mean to do that to your window. We're, we'll pay for it. So the next day or that day, you're the dad. You get on the phone. You call, you know, one of our great glass companies in Whatcom County. They come out, and they're telling you, uh, we're going to have to replace this entire huge window. And your response is, whoa, 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 whoa. He only broke a little bitty part down there. And Lindell Glass or Lewis Auto Glass, whatever they say, you know what? You have to replace the whole thing if you even dent a plate glass window. And when it comes to the law of God... It's like a plate glass window. You sin once in your life. You've broken the whole thing. 
you're really in big, big trouble. So they were counting on Moses. They were counting, and they were, they were trying to pin their hopes on, on fulfilling the law. And that ladder is leaning up against the wrong, wrong wall. So let's stick with Moses just as an example and go back to the Ten Commandments just for a second. Think back to the preamble, Exodus 20, verse 1. The preamble before you get to the Ten Commandments. You know it. I'm going to read it. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am your God. Not I will be your God if you keep the following commandments. It's already established. I am the Lord your God. And then he gives the rules. The question is, when did the people of Israel get redeemed? They got redeemed not at Mount Sinai. They got redeemed as when they were slaves and they couldn't help themselves find freedom. They got redeemed by the blood of a lamb five weeks earlier when they were in Egypt. The idea here in the Ten Commandments itself is that rules do not bring redemption. Redemption is a gift between you and God. The rules are necessary for things just to be happy, safe, and for everybody to be on the same page. The rules were never meant even in the Ten Commandments, to bring life. Your relationship with God is a personal thing. You were redeemed by the Passover lamb itself. And God is saying in so many words, now that we have a relationship, now let's get on to the rules. And here are the ten big ones that if our relationship is going to work, you need to follow. Christ is the end of the law for finding a right relationship with God. It's not your works and Jesus or you're going to a church or a synagogue and you doing the law or you getting involved in the mission of the church. It's none of those things. It's Jesus, the Lamb, who redeems us. And so it is only Him who makes us right with God. It is in Christ alone. And I like how someone put it, and I want to put this up on the screen for you right now. I always knew Jesus was necessary. I never knew he was enough. And that's what happens when you really get to know who Jesus is. And so Paul begins to shift away from why there are so few Jews for Jesus and having given us these reasons, and he wants to give his own comments at this point. And so he begins to tell us some of the things starting in verse 6. He says, the message is not complicated. It's not a secret, and it's not remote. And so we ask ourselves, well, maybe if it's not a habit, maybe it's something heroic I'm supposed to do for God. And I'll do this one heroic thing, one sacrificial thing, one amazing thing. I do that one big thing, and God will accept me. And Paul says, no, no, no. And he, look at verse 6 with me. He says this. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up. See, finding God is not complicated. You don't have to go on some Don Quixote 
quest to find the lost city of Z. You don't have to get into Virgin Atlantic and developing a new uh, rocket planes to take people into the sky. You do not have to do anything that is superlative or out of the ordinary. And you look down on people who would just do these habitual things where they don't really count. I'll do this one big thing. No, 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 no. Finding God is not complicated. You don't have to go and be a mystic or sit under a tree in India. Not at all. The message that explains how to be right with God is simple. It's something, it's a communication that you can make with God at any place, at any time, in your own way, using your own mouth and with your own words. So what is it? The message is the very message about faith that we preach, and here it is, Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what Paul is calling on us to do is to pray directly, Lord Jesus, to him. Confess with the mouth that he is God. And this is not a confession of faith before men. That's a good thing. Matthew chapter 12, I think it is, says that if you do that, your Jesus will re remember you before the Father. That's not what this kind of confession is about. This is a prayer. This is a prayer to the Lord Jesus. The other kind of confession before men gets a reward in heaven. This is a confession of faith spoken directly to Jesus. It gets you right with God. And this is a heartfelt prayer to Jesus. And this is the identical prayer that Stephen, the first martyr, offers at the end of Acts 7, verse 59. It comes out of his mouth the very same prayer. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He doesn't say Jesus is Lord. It's not a doctrinal thing. It is a direct, desperate cry saying, I'm dying. And now's the time, and I've said it so many times before, you're my hope. Take me home with you. And that's how his life ends. And how our life begins is the same way. You begin a relationship with Jesus using your mouth coming out of the heart. Lord Jesus, I put my trust in you. I know that you're God, L-O-R-D caps. And I appeal to you. I believe in what you did for me on the cross. I believe that you died and that God raised you from the dead. Lord Jesus, I believe. It's a prayer anyone, anywhere, anytime can make. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will not be disgraced. And that's true for Jew or Gentile. And he restates this in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, whoever, from whatever background or ethnic group, from a good home or if you're homeless... Whoever wants to have this real relationship with God can have it. All we need to do is to ask him for it. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if God begins to stir in your heart that it is Jesus, he is wanting to open up your heart to a new relationship with him. He's inviting you to call out, 
Lord Jesus, I believe in you. And if you've never done that before, I want to invite you this weekend, in your own way, just to say, Lord Jesus, it's you I need. And what's interesting in this passage is that Christ starts a good chain reaction. In the New Testament, to call on the name of the Lord means three things. It means an initial experience of faith where you put your faith in Jesus. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. That was in Acts 2.38. Pentecost, they call on the name of the Lord. Here in Romans 10, you call on the name of the Lord and you get right with God. That's where it starts. But the majority of the time in the New Testament when someone is talking about calling on the name of the Lord, it's a group thing. Saul is ready to go get the Christians in Damascus. He's still a Pharisee, and he's going to go there, and he's going to take them to jail. And an angel appears to this good man, Ananias, and he says, look, Ananias, Saul's coming. He has been sent by the high priest to take all of those who call on the name of the Lord and imprison them. Over and over again in the New Testament, to call on the name of the Lord means two things. An initial experience of faith in Jesus and then a communal relationship with all those who call on the name of the Lord. And so when you begin this relationship with Jesus, it doesn't end there. We get together with other people. We're still broken down. We still need other people's support as well as God's. And together we call on the name of the Lord, who is rich in mercy, this passage tells us. And he comes to our aid as we get together in corporate prayer. But there's another way, there's a third part of this that this passage actually talks about. There's a third leg to this journey, and it's described right here in this chapter. And look at verses 14 and 15. It involves people who don't know Jesus. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says this, But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. God is inviting us not only to call upon Jesus privately. He's asking us to get involved with other people. You can call it a small group or a church, whatever you want to call it. Get involved and pray and ask him to do great things. This third calling is... He wants us to invite other people to call upon the name of the Lord. And Paul wants more Jews and Gentiles to come to Jesus and to keep that chain reaction going. And if that happens, more Jews will become Jews for Jesus. There's one other topic I want to bring up in this chapter, and then we'll close our message. How in the world do people like us relate to so few people who are Jews? I struggle to think in my own life how many Jewish buddies or friends I have. There just aren't that many of them in my life. It's not that I don't want them. It's just I don't know if they're Jews or not. So how can I, how can I be a part of helping Jews become Jews for Jesus? And this is, this is what we're going to look at real quickly. What's the plan to reach them? And so historically, there have just been two ways. And I'm going to give you a true-false quiz, and it's in, in the link if you want to use it, okay? 
So write T or F with either one of these, okay? True or false? So put a T or an F by each option. Here we go. Option one. How do we reach out to Jews? Option one, true or false, we revile and we take revenge. Okay? Historically, historically, the church has killed the Jews for centuries. I mean, literally murdered the Jews. Give them the good news? No, 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 no. Good riddance to the Christ killers. It was the Orthodox Church, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, that's put its stamp of approval on going through the Jewish villages and stealing their money. It was the Protestants and the Catholics. And I say this with respect. It was a certain wonderful denomination, a Protestant denomination in Germany that endorsed Adolf Hitler's extinction of the Jews. It was the Catholic Church years and years ago that had an inquisition, not only against the Protestants, but against the, the Moors, the Muslims, and against the Jews. Christopher Columbus may have had to change his name to Christopher Columbus because he, we think he was a Jew. You couldn't get a job if you were a Jew in Europe for years. Martin Luther wrote an entire treatise on, on how we should kill the Jews. This is our history. This is our history. So option one is, will we in this generation do something different or will we keep doing what has been going on for 2,000 years? So if you're reading Romans 9, 10, and 11, I want to ask you, what's Paul's option? Is it true that we should, take, we should revile them, be anti-Semitic, and take revenge, true or false? Fill it in. The answer, obviously, is false. Option two, we reach out through what I would call show and tell. And that's true, so I would encourage you to write a little T right there, okay? We just touched on the tell part in verses 14 and 15. God wants us to be involved in, in getting the Jews the good news. So let me just give a couple of practical things about how we can talk to Jews or for anybody who doesn't know Jesus, okay? Three little things here. Talk about the change Jesus brings in your life. Talk about the change. Talk about how you met him and how you called on him. Let them know that they too can call on this amazing person who not only died for us, who lives with us and then frees us from the power of sin. We can tell, but there's more than just telling. This is show and tell. So how do we show them? If you look with me at verse 19, this is what Paul says. I will rouse your jealousy through the foolish Gentiles. That's you and me. Normally, jealousy is something the Scripture frowns on. It's unbecoming, but not always. Paul says in this chapter that what the Christian church needs is to be good at making other people jealous for what we already have. 
So how do we do that? Well, we show them to God in our prayers. Romans 9.1 and Romans 10.1 are Paul's heartfelt prayer that the Jews will get it, that the haze that is all around them will be lifted, the hardening in their heart will get soft, and that they will call on the name of the Lord. So we show them to God in our prayers. That was his heart. And then we show them the shalom, the peace that you have in Jesus. Not that Jesus gets you free from troubles, but that Jesus is with you in your troubles. The next thing we do, show them boldly, because here's a stereotype, and I'll admit it, a lot of them are New York Jews, and they are as direct as, as can be. And direct people like direct answers. So be bold and to the point with Jewish people. And finally, this last point, show them you won't, you won't give up on them or on their friendship regardless if they respond to you or not. So how do we reach out to Jews and others? We do it through show and tell. I want to leave you with two challenges. One, if you've never called on the name of the Lord Jesus, say it in your own words, Lord Jesus, and you fill in the blank. I believe, I trust. I call on you. And second, start developing the practices of show and tell. And if you and I do that, we'll make more Jews for Jesus. We're going uh, to wrap up our, our time together with a great song that many of us know, and I want to invite you just to stand as we sing In Christ Alone.